Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is managing director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. Okay, guys, today we are going to talk about a very important topic for many people with children, and that is college savings, college planning, and the types of vehicles that people use to save for college. Um, and, you know, I think that particularly for Jack and I, you know, we have young children and we've tried our best to, you know, save as much as possible through some of these vehicles. But I think it's, this is an, uh, you know, a very important uh, subject. Um, it's a, complicated subject, as I think we'll see, you know, we're not going to get into the weeds on everything. We're going to sort of try to stay at a high level with this, but, um, I think this will be like a real good learning experience for, for, for Jack and I, as we sort of, um, look to you, Matt, um, with some of your expertise. So maybe to start, um, can you just talk about the different types of accounts or vehicles that people actually use to save for college? Sure. So today, the main thing we're going to talk about is most likely the 529s, which is a uh, tax advantaged education savings vehicle. Every state has their own plan. We'll talk about what those are. We'll probably touch a little bit on UTLAs or UGMAs. Those are a special type of account where we make a gift to a child. And then when the child is a minor, they don't really have control of the funds, but they can do something with it. Or the parent, the custodian can do something with it while they're still a minor. And people will use those to help pay for college and other kid growing up expenses. And we'll probably touch on Roths and some of the ways that people can use Roths for things like education expenses or also as savings vehicles for kids. That's the most in the box. There's outside of the box from there too, but that's what we're here to talk about. So working through the plans, you mentioned most people are using 529s. Why is that? What are the advantages of 529s? So with 529, to get at this, it's a tax advantaged education savings vehicle. And that's the way to kind of think about it. So it's, we're thinking about it on the contribution level and then on the distribution level with a bunch of tax things along the way. So first and foremost, sort of anybody can open a 529 for anybody. Usually it's a parent opens a 529 for the kids or grandparents open it for grandkids, but like I can open one for my niece. Um, you can technically open one for your neighbor's kid. The other thing within that too is if I open one for my kid and my parent decides to give me money to put into their 529, that could happen too. Now with 529s, once money goes in, the idea is it can grow along the way. And then once it's distributed, it can, so long as it's going towards a qualified education expense and put the air quotes around that, there's lists online saying what these things are, then it comes out tax-free. So if I put $10,000 into the 529, 18 years goes by, kid grows up, now $100,000. I now have $100,000 that can pay for tuition, room, board, 
and a laptop. And uh, I, I didn't pay any taxes along the way for that growth. Are there limits as to what can be contributed to a 529 or can you put in as much as you want? So there's no annual contribution limit, which comes with a giant asterisk. And this is going to be a common theme on this. So first, before we talk about contributions, I will say this. Every state has its own plan. Big push uh, for savingforcollege.com. That's one of the websites. There's a bunch more, but they'll explain whatever state you're in, what some of the rules are. And it's really, really important that you understand your state rules first and that you also understand you can participate in other state plans too, not to make it more confusing, but there's wrinkles here. So with a 529, there's no annual contribution limit, but there are total max plan limits that you can put in. And those vary by state. They start on the low end around like just over 200 grand. They max out on the high end at just over 500,000. The key contribution limit on an annual basis that most people think of is they think in terms of gift. So each individual can gift uh, $16,000. A married couple can do $32,000. This is called the gift tax inclusion. When you're putting money into a 529 on an annual basis, you're usually thinking in terms of the gift tax exclusion amount. And in certain circumstances, if people have a lump they want to put in, there are some five-year rules. You mentioned qualified education expenses, and obviously you mentioned there's a resource people can go to. We don't want to get into that in, in ex, you know, excruciating detail here, but in general, tuition, room and board, things like that. Tuition, room, board, certain travel expenses to and from school, certain pieces of equipment, things like that, like a phone, a laptop or whatever, the uh, tablet, they can all count as qualifying expenses. It's a, it's a broader list than most people realize, which is why I say look it up. And, and I thought I met, I read recently that you can also now use it for levels of school below college. Is, is, am I right about that? So you're absolutely correct. And, and what's cool about this too, is you can use it for whether it's the senior taking AP courses or it's parochial school or private school or all sorts of other wrinkles. There are lines around this. It's about $10,000. So you want to check on what the rules and restrictions are, but it's not just a college savings vehicle anymore. And then just to follow up on the state thing, you mentioned people can do these in states outside of their home state. And what, what would be the things you would be thinking about when you'd be deciding what state to use? So 30-ish of the 50 states have some type of benefit for participating in the state plan. And these benefits can range from having a tax credit. So if I'm in Connecticut, I can get a tax credit based on what I put into the Connecticut state plan as an example, since that's where you guys are. Um, other states, you might have full deductibility of the contributions. So it's a sliding scale, but those benefits can get pretty attractive for people as they participate in their state plans. Now, if I live in a state that doesn't offer a benefit at all, or I live in a state where the benefit is marginal to me in my situation, I can go participate in another state plan. And as you might imagine, there's states that literally cater to out-of-state people with lesser benefits that go, we have a cheaper investment lineup or we have a higher max state um, allowable plan limit or whatever that can be attractive. So again, you start with your state to understand the rules and then you can start looking at other states depending on what you want to accomplish. And the, the owners and the beneficiaries of these, they are changeable, right? They're not, they're not locked in. A really powerful feature is the owner can be swapped out and the beneficiary can be swapped out. And so in its most basic forms, so uh, if parent has, a, has two kids and kid one doesn't use everything, we can swap, and there's rules, but we can swap to the other child 
so that the assets can be used to pay for the next child's education. Likewise, parent A passes away, parent B can step in as the new owner. And there's a lot of flexibility here. Just a, a side note, when I set up my kids' 529s, I didn't love the investment options that Connecticut was offering. So I decided to open them actually in New Hampshire because uh, that's where Fidelity's 529 plans were. And, you know, so that might have been a mistake for me not getting the tax benefit of Connecticut. But I think I got better investment options, although a lot of these 529 plans are pretty limited in sort of what you're well, what they're offering in terms of the, the vehicles, you know, it's like passive, you know, market indices, basically. And I got to say this too on that, because that's, that's a real consideration if you're in a state that has a marginal benefit. And I'll say Connecticut does have a pretty marginal benefit. Like, let's just say it's like a $500 state income tax credit. So if that's not changing your life, better investment returns over a 10, 20 year horizon, you're, it's worth looking at. It's also worth saying too, that you have basically advisor or investor sold plans, and then you have direct plans. And so we'll pick on Connecticut again. In Connecticut, you used to have the chat that was just offered originally by Tia Kreff. And so it was basically like, you couldn't go consult with an advisor or a broker for the plan. You just had to go to this website and figure it out yourself. Uh, then Connecticut partnered with the Hartford, I believe, and you had the advisor sold plan. So now you can go get a, a broker at different places and they can give you advice. All of this changes the fee structure and everything else on these things too. So as you're looking at like the investment options available, you have to look at fees and expenses. You have to look at your personal tax consequences of doing this. And it's, that's why again, websites like saving for college, and I'm sure there's other ones too, where you can see all these differences and, and stack them up next to each other. Super valuable. How about the UGMA and the UGMA? Why would someone use one of those? Okay, so UGMA and UGMA, Uniform Trust for Minors Act, uh, Uniform Gift to Minors Act. What you're, what you're basically doing is the, the parent is giving a gift to the child and you're saying this minor child isn't responsible for this yet, but uh, when they are no longer a minor, then this is their money. And you're pre-committing to that gift for when they're no longer a minor effectively is what you're doing. So... The first thing that's different from a 529, 529, no age limits. If I'm 75 and I want to go for my PhD, I can use a 529. If I'm 75, um, I'm over the age of 18 or whatever the state and the financial institution says, nobody's giving me an UGMA or an UGMA account. So the age distinction is really important between 529 and UGMA. Now, the other thing with UGMAs and UGMAs are um, typically your kid, unless they're gainfully employed, are at a lower tax rate than you. So when you take money and put it into an UGMA or UGMA and you invest that money, they have some benefits and mostly that they don't really have much earned income. So there is something called the kitty tax. And if you're going to do an UGMA or an UGMA, it's imperative that you understand what this is. But generically speaking, it's like $1,100 or so is going to be totally tax-free. The next $1,100 on top of that is going to be at a reduced rate something like 10%. And then above that, the parent's tax rate applies. And the way to really think about this is if I'm putting more than a few thousand dollars into an UGMA or an UGMA, understand how the kitty tax rules. But honestly, as that stacks up, you can get a pretty good amount of money into an UGMA or UGMA where dividend, cap gain, all that stuff doesn't really impose a lot of tax drag until you get, you know, maybe closer to six figures where you're really starting to worry about it. 
um, or the benefits deteriorating. And so when the kid turns 18, they have complete control of this. Like if they want to go through a massive party and not go to college, they can go do that. So this is where there are rules and there are checks and balances here. And your financial institution is the one turning over the keys. But technically what you're doing is you're saying once they're of age, you're going to turn over the keys for ownership of this account. There are wrinkles. See Britney Spears and a bunch of other cases. There are wrinkles where the parent may not want to turn over the keys to the Yetma and the courts have to get involved. So know what you're doing as a parent when you set up the Yetma Regla. You're basically telling the kid once they reach the age of majority in, the, in your state that they have control, but there are ways. What, what I plan to do with, with my kids' accounts, because I have those as well, is like I'm planning to sort of not tell them about it. And then like use it for like their wedding or something, if, if, if we can get that far. Um, that's my vision, at least, you know, they kind of know they have accounts, but they don't necessarily know what they are. So I'm just going to basically not tell them. And it should be said, there's nothing wrong with that. And if they don't know it's there, they can't take you to court and force you to turn it over. The financial institution might heavily encourage you to turn it over to them. But the other thing too, is think of the difference. Like if you did that in just a savings account or a taxable brokerage account in your name, well then dividend, cap gains, all that stuff, you're going to pay your tax rate on. If you do it in the UGMA or the UTMA, you at least get some tax breaks up to a point on that money. And there's a differential there. So it's, it's each family has their own problem to solve, but it can be an effective way to do it. And I'm all about keeping secrets from your kids that are positive surprises later. I thought I read in the, uh, I remember from the CFP exam that there's sort of a hierarchy in terms of how much this counts against financial aid and like the assets of the kid count the most, the assets of the parent count less. So is that a downside of this? I mean, is, is this an asset of the child that counts more against financial aid? And so let's, let's zoom out and talk just aid for a second. So most of the time when we're talking about aid, we're talking about this thing called the FAFSA and that's the free application for federal student aid or something like that. Don't kill me if I got the acronym wrong. So. Usually when you're about 17 years old, you're getting ready for college, the parents and the, the to be college bound student are going to fill out this thing called the FAFSA. In the FAFSA, you're looking at two big things. You're looking at cost of attendance or COA and effective family contribution or EFC. And what the FAFSA does is that they're looking at the parent income and assets. Certain things are excluded, which is the point that you're making. So retirement account and certain 529s and other things get excluded, but income and assets for the parents, then income and the assets for the kid. And it's the same thing. Certain things are excluded. So you want to be aware of as a general rule of thumb, what the FAFSA is trying to do is basically go, here are the colleges you're applying to. Here's how much they cost based on how much they cost. And based on the income and the assets on the parents and the kid, here's how much you should be expected to contribute to that school. And you either can afford that or you need to go out and find loans or other things to do this. So the more income you have, like the less age you're going to get. And that skews more heavily in favor of, you know, parents and kids based on scenarios. Same thing with assets. The biggest thing I can't stress enough on this is everyone's situation is unique. There are actually calculators where you can plug this all in and see which assets and which income sources do parents and kids have. How do they stack together? And then how does that affect the effective family contribution, um, depending on the school that you're looking at? Um, to your point, 
income, even money relief from the 529 has an impact on the student in certain cases and how much aid they potentially qualify for. Super important. And have you seen people use just basically standard taxable accounts to plan for college? I remember we had Daniel Crosby on the podcast um, and, and he was talking about basically the reason he doesn't use a 529 is he doesn't like people telling him what he can do. So like he didn't like the fact that there were rules surrounding it. So he was just kind of saving like on his own for it. I mean, do you, do you see that a lot or is that not something you see very often? Absolutely. And the reason you might see that too, is you can go, maybe a state doesn't have really good benefits. And maybe you, you're in a wealthy family who you say, we're not going to get any aid anyway. And you should still do the FAFSA and you should still do the calculators and make sure that you're correct. Because in many cases, there's, there's some perks and there's some reasons you want to just check these things and not leave obvious money on the table. But you might just say, yeah, put it in a savings account and I'll draw from there. It's still going to go on the FAFSA. They're still going to see this is the parental asset and this is what it's expected to cost. But you may or may not be leaving much on the table by doing it that way, uh, depending on your financial situation. How do you think about the process of deciding how much to put away? Like, I remember when my, when my first daughter was born, like I did this massive calculation where I looked at like the price college was going up and I, I looked at everything and I was like, well, if I want to, you know, pay for like the most expensive schools, I have to save like $800 a month or something like that. Like, how do, how do you think about that process with clients of deciding, like, what is the appropriate amount to put away? So two pieces of this. And the first is, and I know these are kind of outdated numbers, but they're the numbers stuck in my head. Uh, BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, publishes these, I think, pretty regularly. But the numbers have been for a long time, basically. If you have no degree. So for uh, the first thing I'm answering is, like, why college at all? No degree uh, to a degree. Germanic poetry. Shout out to my fellow music majors. Like, just get a degree. It's worth $25,000 a year for the rest of your working career. Go get an advanced degree. It's worth $60,000 worth than more than, than no degree. So the value of going to college in earnings capacity and future wealth, it's one of the, still one of the greatest predictors on where money comes from and how to have a more comfortable lifestyle. So that's why we care that Probably we went to college and we care that our kids or other people we care about go to school. It just, it's a better life if you do that. Now it's also friggin' expensive. So when you look at college and Nick Majuli and keep, uh, just keep buying book has a really great section on this that I'd encourage you if you want to dive into discount rates on this stuff, go check it out. But when saving for college, a big part of the calculation for families is how much of it do we want to save? And we talk with a lot of families who have like either I want to fully fund college or I want to fund half of it or some other metric. And this is where we step back and go back to our goals-based planning episode. We know we need to save $200,000 in today's dollars for school in 10 years. So how do we want to get there and what portion of that do we want to do? And it comes into that expectations and assumptions thing. So Here's the amount of money I want to do. How much can I afford to put in a 529 based on what's allowable in the budget? What's the tax impact of doing that? Does this really get me where I want to go? Um, and it's a long way to also say, maybe the answer is part 529, part UTMA, part just a buffer in your savings. Everybody's situation is different and all these tools are on the table for you to use. Just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. I want to ask about grandparent 529s because I know when I talk to financial planners, they say if the grandparents have the money, 
to be able to do this, this can be a really big asset, um, you know, for saving for a kid's college. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about why that is. So grandparent 529th have a bunch of extra perks too, some of which are about to change with um, the SECURE Act and some of the things in the next couple of years that are happening. But one big thing is the 529 and the grandparent's name, grandparents are the owners, not the parents, not the kids. So it's not showing up on the FAFSA at all. The income from the grandparent to the kid, a portion of that can show up on the FAFSA as income to the student, but those rules are changing in the next couple of years. So if the grandparents have a 529, make sure you're up on the 2024 changes regarding those things. Um, back to the original question a while ago about uh, you can change the owners and you can change the beneficiaries. When we look at grandparents, this is our first step back until... In, into where we start to get into why 529s can be so powerful across multiple generations. Because that one grandparent dies, the next uh, grandparent can take over. Um, if there's not another grandparent, someone else can be named as the owner. Likewise, a trust can be appointed as the owner, and we can stretch this on for multiple generations. So the grandparent 529 has like immediate family consequences, but it also has multi-generational family consequences that can be tremendously powerful when you put the thinking cap on. And if you want to Google, you know, dynasty 529s and some of that stuff, you can really get a sense for just how far you can stretch these college bound dollars. You know, I ran track for UConn, but I was not on a scholarship. So I was a kid from Vermont that came down to run, to run for UConn, but never got any money from the school for it. I probably got into school because of it. I think the coach helped a little bit, but I didn't get me, but I'm hoping that my older, well, maybe both my daughters, but my oldest daughter is pretty pretty fast. And so I'm hoping that she gets a, a, a scholarship, but in the event that she doesn't, she has some 529 there, but let's, let's, let's say she does. You had mentioned the beneficiaries can change. So if she gets a full ride to college, uh, but she has this 529, I mean, what other options does I have? I have another daughter. So, I mean, what, what are my options there? So let's, let's just play the scenario. So she gets a full ride. So first off, just so you know, if you only had one child and they got a full ride and you were just like, well, screw it, take the money out. You can do that. And there's actually language with the full ride that sometimes you can take the money out without the 10% tax penalty. You may still have to pay income tax. There's other things, but consult the professional, the full ride scenario. There's some, there's some wiggle room. Um, they will penalize you completely for that, uh, for that gift. Now, the other piece of that though, is in your case, you might just switch the beneficiary to your other child, or you might actually hang on to that because Back to the whole age thing, it, it, it doesn't mean that they're not going to get this scholarship and then at like 32 decide they want to go pursue another degree. It doesn't mean that along the way somewhere, some debt or something else is accrued relative to school that some of those five to nine dollars actually count for application towards. Likewise, it doesn't mean that you can't hold that in their name. They grow up, have kids of their own. Now you have grandkids and you can talk about how to skip the generation and help pay for their school. So tremendously flexible vehicle just because you're saving into this thing it's not a use it or lose it scenario i thought i had heard that there's a change i don't know if it was the secure act or some other legislation that came down that talked about converting 529 to roth iras um what is the what is that new legislation so the secure act did update this so consult a professional don't try this at home but effectively $35,000 approximately can be converted from the 529. So in your, in your child's name, 
can be converted into a Roth account. There's some max cap limits. And the thing that I would say about this, where it's $35,000, you know, you're not changing anybody's life per se, or $30,000, you got to double check those dollar amounts. But the, think about it from the scenario of kid goes to school, doesn't spend the whole 529, there's enough money left over, we take that and convert it. Well, if I have a 22-year-old and I have $35,000 in a Roth, and now they go and they work for 40 years, that turns into real money if that's invested and compounds along the way. So it's a really cool way to say parents who are saving money for college now have an extra arrow in the quiver for helping their kids retire down the road. Yeah, that's that seems like a great piece of legislation for for people that have saved and that have these you know larger 529s. I mean, that's that could be huge for a kid. And really cool because again, if you're forward thinking, it doesn't sound like a life altering amount of money, but a life altering amount of money that can comes from compounding over time, which is which is actually pretty neat. And again, all the more reason to be thoughtful about this stuff. If you're putting this money in, they're giving you more flexibility with this change in the law. So I think in summary, I mean, we've talked about the advantages of 529s. Um, we've talked about the benefits you get on a state-by-state -state basis. There's the UPMA and the UGMA type of accounts for those people that um, you know want to take advantage of those. Uh, Roth IRAs. Um, and then some of the grandparent stuff as well. So, I mean, there's a lot here. I think we'll continue to sort of, as we do more of these podcasts, probably peel back the onion on more of these topics and go a little bit deeper. Um, I think the other big takeaway for me is this idea of changing the beneficiaries and, um, you know, changing the owners of them and some of the flexibility that the 529 offers. Uh, yeah, and I also want to just highlight some of the sites, Matt, you were mentioning before. So you have savingforcollege.com. That's a really good resource for people to go. And also, um, I know I've looked at the IRS's site, which is that's where the actual rules are. So, um, you know, those are resources for people. There's, there's many others, but I also think, you know, for people that have an advisor, you know, talking to your advisor about, um, about these things is certainly important because that person is going to have, you know, all the details and, hopefully be up to speed on the latest changes and legislation that's either been enacted or com coming down the pipe. So those are, those are definitely places you want to check out. If there's something that as people watch this, if people want to have us discuss, you know, other topics, please let us know because, you know, we want to hear from the audience about what you're interested in. And then, you know, we'll, we'll formulate sort of the topics around, around that. So thank you guys very much for listening to this episode and we'll see you next time. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at @cultishcreative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod@gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.